Stop, stop, stop. Hold on. Pause the music. I need to tell you all something. The Everyday Hope podcast has been temporarily suspended. Today you are joining the Everyday Hope Beachcast. That's right, I said it. I'm recording this episode mere feet from the beach, and I can tell you that the surf is most definitely up. We've been languishing in a parade of clam chowder and shrimp the size of a baby's arm, and fresh local bass, and beach. And yes, this is me gloating. Which brings me to a philosophical question. Is gloating better or worse than whining? Hmm. Well, whining's more irritating, but gloating is more aggravating. I'm going to say that I'm, I'm going to go with gloating. Gloating is better because when someone whines, everyone's miserable. But when I'm gloating, at least I'm happy. All right, enough of that. Time to get back to Revelation. Hey, we're in chapter six this week, so pitter-patter. Now, chapter four and five took place during a great scene of worship in heaven. We saw all creatures worshiping the Ancient of Days. We saw the martyrs gathered under the altar and We saw the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, and the Root of David take the scroll from God's hand as all creatures worshipped the Lamb who was worthy to be worshipped. And as chapter 6 opens, the Lamb begins to open the seals on that scroll, which we talked about as the scroll of destiny, the scroll of the unfolding of God's plan for creation, which he created before he laid the foundations of the world. And understanding the scroll this way, we shouldn't be surprised about what we're going to see. I believe the seven seals paint a picture of human history from heaven's point of view. We see the results of sin, but we also see what has become of our loved ones who have gone before us. Then we're finally treated to a vision of the long-awaited day of the Lord. The past, present, and future of humankind are revealed from this heavenly perspective as we've never seen it before. So, the action plays out over the next two chapters. In chapter 6, we'll see the Lamb open the first six seals, culminating in a great and terrible earthquake. But he doesn't open the seventh seal until the start of chapter 8. So we need to understand chapter 7 as being somehow part of this process, the process of the seals, or maybe, more specifically, the sixth seal. We'll talk about that in the next episode. But for now, let's focus on chapter 6 and the first six seals. And that process opens with maybe the most universally recognized figures in all of Revelation, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, I think the four horsemen are so recognizable because, well, they're the most readily available to our imagination. We can picture them much more clearly than we can a a beast with seven heads and ten horns or four living creatures with eyes all over, right? So, let's dive in. When the Lamb opens the first seal, one of the living creatures summons the first horse. It's a white horse and its rider has a bow. It is given a crown, interesting how the bow comes before the crown, and he rides out conquering and in order that he might conquer. This rider is clearly bent towards subjugation by force. Now, some folks try to make a connection between this rider and the rider in chapter 19, who we know to be Jesus. In effect, they're saying that the first of the four horsemen is Jesus. Let me just say, um, no. The only connection between them is that both riders are on white horses. But in chapter 19, every rider is on a white horse. So is every rider in chapter 19 Jesus? No, and neither is this one. The character here is not the horse, it's the rider, the conqueror. When the lamb opens the second seal, the second living creature summons the second horse, a red one. And its rider had permission, 
weird word, to take peace from the world. This writer is often considered either war or strife. And you may ask, what's the difference? Well, some believe that this writer represents war that's the natural consequence of a desire for conquest. Others believe that while the first writer represents conquest from without, the second writer represents rebellion from within, strife. I don't think the distinction is necessary. I believe that since both of these situations naturally follow conquest, it might be better to think of the second writer as representing bloodshed by violence. Conquest leads to war and bloodshed. Now, John's original audience would have understood this as the Roman conquest of the known world, followed by the bloodshed of failed rebellion after failed rebellion that had so marked their existence for generations. But the vision is no less relevant for us today. We've witnessed time and time again throughout the history of the world that the natural course of sinful human beings is the desire for conquest that leads to war and bloodshed. One always produces the other. Then the Lamb opens the third seal, and the third living creature summons the third rider, on his menacing black horse. He carries a pair of scales, and a voice from amid the four living creatures shouts out a list of prices for the necessities of life. But these prices are grossly inflated, so much so that we're clearly meant to understand this is a time of famine and want. This is emphasized by the fact that the oil and wine, products not of necessity but of comfort, remain untouched. Now, because this voice comes from amid the four living creatures, Some scholars attribute this voice to God as as if this were a plague or judgment of God upon the world. However, the four living creatures each summon these writers themselves. The fact that the voice comes from among them and not specifically from the throne makes me think this is the natural course of action. The desire for conquest leads to war and bloodshed, and war naturally leads to a time of extreme want and famine and plague. That's how it works. And Christians from both the 1st and 21st centuries can easily make that connection. Then the lamb opens the fourth seal, and the fourth living creature summons the last horse, the scary one. This is the infamous pale horse, and the one sitting upon it was Thanatos, death himself, and Hades followed with him. Some scholars believe that death and Hades are two separate characters, that death rides out on his pale horse, a sickly green color, and Hades rides along as his companion. It's not a crazy idea since verse 8 tells us that authority was given to them, plural, And what do they do? Well, John uses the four historical plagues seen in Ezekiel 14, 12 to 20. Sword, famine, pestilence, and wild animals. They are given authority to kill one-fourth of the population with these four plagues. And once again, isn't this just a natural occurrence? Conquest begets war and bloodshed. War begets famine and want. And this entire cycle begets death on a global scale. It's the natural offspring. Imagine being a first century Christian. Isn't this your life? A conqueror comes and bloodshed follows and famine strikes those most in need and death nips at your heels. How about for us 21st century Christians? Isn't this the natural cycle of human history we've seen played out for millennia and emphasized in the last hundred years? Conquest, war, famine, and death. This has been our legacy since the fall. Now, most folks refer to the seven seals as plagues, God's judgment on the world. They interpret the seven seals as the judgments of the Lord that will be wrought against the earth at some future date. However, the seals are being opened on the scroll of destiny, revealing that destiny from beginning to end. What we're seeing is a story of humankind, past, present, and future, from the point of view of heaven. So I've been struggling to understand these seals merely as plagues, and the fifth seal is the one that really clinches it for me. This is not a plague at all. When the Lamb opens the fifth seal, John sees the host of martyrs, those who have been killed for the word of God and their testimony to Jesus Christ, 
all gathered under the altar in heaven. And we hear them cry out to the Lord, How long? How long, O Lord? Now this is a very common cry in Scripture. The Psalms are full of laments to the Lord that he would vindicate his people before their and his enemies. Psalm 6.3 says, I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? Psalm 13.1-2 says, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Psalm 74.10, How long, O God, will you allow our enemies to insult you? Will you let them dishonor your name forever? Psalm 79.5, O Lord, how long will you be angry with us? Forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Psalm 82.2, How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Boy, you know, sometimes the way the world goes, that's exactly how I feel too. Psalm 89.46, O Lord, how long will this go on? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your anger burn like fire? Ever feel like God is hiding from you? Psalm 94, 3-4, How long, O Lord? How long will the wicked be allowed to gloat? How long will they speak with arrogance? How long will these evil people boast? And Psalm 119, 84, How long must I wait? When will you punish those who persecute me? These are just some of the Psalms. We'd, we'd be here all day if we ran through all the Psalms and the prophets. In verse 10, The martyrs cry out together, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? But the martyrs are not ignored. Verse 11 shows us the response to these martyred faithful, and that response is a message of hope, peace, and comfort to all who suffer. And that message comes in three parts. First, the martyrs are given a white robe, the sign of righteousness. This means that they wear an outward symbol that God has judged them to be righteous. And second, they're told to rest. There is some time yet before the plan for humanity is complete and the day of the Lord will come. Until then, he bids them rest, and I believe he gives them rest. And finally, remember where they are. They are in the presence of the Lord. They are gathered under the altar in John's vision of heaven. So the cycle of conquest, war, famine, and death seems to culminate in the righteous martyrs, those who have died for the testimony of the Lord, being gathered in his presence clothed in righteousness and given rest until the day of the Lord will come upon the earth. So amen to that. Then the lamb opens the sixth seal and all hell breaks loose. Verses 12 to 17 describe a, a serious bit of mayhem that occurs when the sixth seal is opened. But before we read that passage, I want to read another passage. 2 Peter 3 verses 10 to 13 so that we can compare them. So listen to 2 Peter first. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fire, and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. Since all of these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved, and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. You know, I think it's easy to hear the promise in this passage, right? We hear the description of the day of the Lord as a promise of the new heaven and the new earth to come, right? So I'm going to read Revelation 6, 12 to 17 and try to hear it the same way. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth 
as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? When the Lamb opens the sixth seal, we get a glimpse from heaven's point of view of the long-awaited day of the Lord. God's people have been awaiting this day for so long, and now through John, God gives us a glimpse of it. The day of the Lord is mentioned by many of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Zephaniah, Zechariah. What I find interesting is that most of the prophets speak of that great day as a day of doom and judgment. All of God's enemies will feel his wrath and judgment, and so are called to fear that day. The New Testament still describes it as both great and terrible, with the dissolution of the universe and fear and trembling. However, the New Testament, there's this sense of hope in that day as well. This hope understands more fully the impact of that day on God's people, their redemption and vindication, and this hope is realized in Christ. So when John receives the vision of the sixth seal being opened and witnesses this view of the day of the Lord, he understands the hope that exists for the true Israel of God. However, the message of hope in that day is postponed until chapter 7. So, what do these seals all tell us? Well, the course of human history is bound up in a vicious cycle of conquest, war, famine, and death. But the martyrs have been gathered under the altar, clothed in righteousness, and given rest until the time has come. Then the day of the Lord comes, and all creation responds in fury and chaos. Earthquakes, fire, and dread of all those on earth who have ignored the Lord. And in the end, we wonder what will come next and what will become of us. So I think it's both interesting and useful to look at the seals as the first view of human history from heaven's perspective. Human history seems to be mired in the repeating cycle of conquest, war, famine, and death. And yet in the larger picture, and from heaven's point of view, that cycle includes the gathering of those who have suffered and died for the Lord under the altar in heaven, clothed in righteousness and given rest. And then the universe shakes with the awesome power of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, think about what John's original audience would have heard. Try to imagine yourself as a late first century Christian, living in southwestern Turkey, listening as someone read this vision to you. How would you have heard it? Well, maybe something like this. The cycle of human violence and sin has culminated in the evils of Rome. But never fear, the martyrs slain under Nero are at this very moment under the altar in heaven, awaiting those who will suffer under Diocletian. And when God determines its time, the day of the Lord will come, and the universe will respond in chaos, and all will know that he is God. Our faith will be vindicated, and God will make all things right. And that's a great message for folks who are really suffering from an imminent persecution, right? But now, how should we hear it? How should a 21st century Christian believer hear this message? Well, maybe this is a good start. The cycle of human violence and sin has culminated in the evils of every empire. But never fear, the martyrs slain for centuries are at this very moment under the altar in heaven, awaiting those who have yet to suffer. And when God determines its time, the day of the Lord will come, and the universe will respond in chaos, and all will know that he is God. Our faith will be vindicated and God will make all things right. Now, that's a message I can live with. And keep in mind that the setting things right bit happens in chapter 7, where all of God's people from every tribe and every nation are sealed by God. 
All God's people from both covenants are gathered to him. The promise is clear. The chaos and rage of the universe on the day of the Lord will not destroy my people, says the Lord God. The question asked then at the end of chapter 6, who can withstand it? And that answer comes in chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, the seventh seal will be opened and there will be silence in heaven. The seventh seal seems to invoke the coming of the angels who will blow the seven trumpets. But we'll get to that later. So, what do we take away from the sixth chapter? Well, I think there's a very important message here. Do you guys remember the movie Bruce Almighty? In that movie, Bruce is a guy struggling to get his life to turn out the way he wants. No, no. He wants it to turn out the way he thinks he deserves. But in spite of having so much going for him, he feels that things aren't turning out the way they should, and he blames God. You see, in Bruce's mind, God exists to make sure things go our way. That's his job, right? And I think many of us have heard this before. We all know people who think this way. They look around at the world and they see chaos. Global warming, terrorism, food shortages, a worsening economy, moral decay, a global pandemic, suffering, blah, blah, blah. And what do they say? They say, how could a loving God permit this? For Bruce, it was very personal. How could God not sort my life out? For others, it might be less selfish. How could God permit badness in the world? And... Given that point of view, they feel obligated to make an assumption. Either God doesn't exist or he just doesn't care. God's therefore an impotent relic from a bygone time, an idea created by people who needed to feel better about the world. But that assumption is based on some skewed ideas about what God's job really is. Bruce believed God was obligated to make his life work out. Others may think that if God were real, nothing in the world would ever go wrong. God exists to make things go as I think they should, right? We all know that. Look, the problem is no one takes responsibility for the sin of humankind. And no one seems to understand the effect sin has had on this world. And so John comes along with this vision of the scroll of destiny. And through this vision, God shows us all of human history, past, present, and future, from heaven's point of view. We see the repeating cycle of conquest, blood, famine, and death, all caused by ourselves and our sin. But we also see redemption, vindication, recreation. We see that the lamb who is worthy is already conquered. The death and destruction we face every day will come to an end. The faithful in Christ who have died for him are clothed in righteousness and at peace. The day of the Lord is coming. All creation will explode into chaos and God will bring about the culmination of his plan, a new heaven and a new earth. And so from a realistic point of view, chapter six says to us, don't worry. I know it looks bad out there. It looks bad from up here too. And I know things don't always make sense. And it looks like everything is out of control, but God is not, has never been, and will never be out of control. His plan is being brought to fulfillment by the Lamb who is worthy. The day the Lord will come. So while you wait, be the church the way God has called you to be. And don't worry. Never fear. The Lamb is worthy. God is in control. And all will be made right. All right, I'm going to pray for you right now. And I know I say this every time, but I want you to be safe. I'd hate to think you were cruising down the highway, but decided to close your eyes to assume proper praying position. Remember, God can hear you with your eyes open. So keep your eyes on the road or on the baby or on whatever you're doing. Just let your hearts pray with me. Father, there is so much fear and angst and chaos in the world. And sometimes we're tempted to think you're not on the job. So we thank you for this great reminder. You do have a plan. You are in control and you are working out the destiny of all people in your time 
and in your way. Thank you for being our God and for bringing about redemption for us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've got a little bit more beach time. Um, This beach cast will continue for one more episode where we talk about chapter 7, and I will see you then. God bless.